0: Father, it is to that end that we are aiming this morning. It's the glory of your name. Because, Father, we know that is where creation is running. That's that's where all of history is leading. It is every man, woman, and child from every tribe, tongue, and nation that you have called to yourself, gathered around, around your throne to sing the glory of your name. So, Father, we ask this morning as we come to your word that we would submit ourselves under its authority. And we confess not to our name, but to your name, O Lord, be the glory. That we would not attempt to rob what can only belong to you. So, Father, would you grant us the humility to bring ourselves under the full authority of your word? God, we recognize it as good and right and perfect and true as everything that we need to know who you are and to know who we are and who you've called us to be as your sons and your daughters. So Father, this morning we ask as you speak to us through your word, will you edify your church and glorify your name? Sanctify us in the truth of your word. Your word is truth. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. Hey, before you sit down, very quick, I know we still have a few folks in the back, I think, looking for seats. I know there's not a lot of room in here, but if we can scoot to the middle as as much as possible to leave seats available on the outside aisles uh, for those who may come in, as you do that, feel free to go ahead and have a seat. I want to welcome all of you who normally attend the 9 a.m. to the second service this morning uh, on uh, this Daylight Savings Weekend, Uh, or to those of you who arrived at 10, for all we know, you were here 45 minutes early. Amen. So, uh, glad to have you guys here today, and and as you find your seats, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is the passage that uh, Elder, uh, that uh, Ashton Converse from our elder team read for us a few moments ago. we been looking together at verses 12 through 26, and we have a lot that we're going to try to do together, and so we're going to dive right into things together this morning. If you are here for the first time, if you're our guest, for the last couple of months, our church family has been in a message series called Ecclesia, where we have been looking uh, from the perspective of God's Word what the church actually is and what God's God has called us as his people, the church, to be and to do. Not according to our preferences, not according to our opinions. Uh, What does the word of God actually tell us about the church um, and who has he called us to be as his people? And so each week we have looked at not just what the church is, um, but what it is we are called to do as the body of believers. And a mantra that we've rallied around together as a church family every single week of this series has been very simply that words have meaning. We need to remember that words have meaning, and this word church, we, we can't uh, just be, feel free to make it mean whatever we want it to mean. Now, you know, it's, it's crazy for, for me to think about this. This just popped in my mind yesterday. This weekend for our church family actually marks two years since the COVID chaos ensued. Uh, it was two years ago this weekend. I got a call at about 10 o'clock on a Saturday night letting us know we were not going to be able to meet here in person the next morning and and man so much has happened in the last 2 years feels like 2 decades right so much has unfolded and you know going into 2020 we had already as a culture particularly as western christians adopted some really unhealthy thinking about what the church is and, and, and we just have, have fallen kind of into this trap as believers in the West of, of kind of just identifying uh, church as any sort of religious activity that we're doing. And so there was already some wacky understanding about what the church is and, and what the church is called to do pre-2020, and then that has gotten even more chaotic over the last two years. And it seems like we have less and less clarity on what the church is and what the calling of the church is. So each week of this series, we've rallied around this definition. This is in your notes if you're following the worship guide today. And we've given you these scripture references because we want you to see, again, not just from our opinion, but from the word of God, what the church actually is. And we've seen for eight weeks that a local church is an assembly of believers in Jesus Christ who profess him as Lord and are submitted to the authority of his word. They regularly gather under the leadership of qualified pastors and elders to receive the whole counsel of God's word and to observe the ordinances of baptism and communion. They stir one another up to love and good works, hold each other accountable to walk in holiness, and work together to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth." And we just rallied around this definition every single week, and we're unpacking different components of it every single week, and, and we're doing this in order to bring clarity. As Westerners, we have a really unhealthy uh, tendency to categorize almost any spiritual activity as church. So we might say, well, my church is just kind of my small group. It's my Bible study group. Uh, Church is me just out on the boat listening to worship music. Church is me live streaming a service from the beach. Church is the parachurch organization that I am involved with. And all of these things are good things. They're all supplemental things that help us to grow in our faith and complement our relationship to the church. But none of these things in and of themselves can replace the church. That definition that we've looked at for eight weeks, these things are the irreducible minimums. And no matter how insignificant some of those components might seem, to remove any one of those components is to essentially get away from what the Bible defines as a church. So the purpose of this series is to provide clarity. It's to provide clarity. What actually constitutes a biblical church, and more specifically, what are the marks of a healthy church? And today, we're going to move on to the next mark, which is church membership from the biblical perspective. Now, a couple of weeks ago, um, we I'm just going to invite you into my marriage here for just a second, and our work dynamic as, uh, as, as husband and wife. You know, Many of you know that uh, my wife, Emily, runs the social media for our church family and oversees all of our communications, and our staff uses an app called Slack for all of our internal communications. So one day, uh, Emily sends me a message and says, hey, do you want me to to do a post online covering the big rocks for the groundbreaking service. Now, um, whenever she used the word big rocks, I took this as literal interpretation. Those of you who were here last Sunday or were with us at the groundbreaking service, you know that we literally gave out big rocks, right? Like we wrote the names of people that we're praying for, we wrote scripture memory verses, we wrote song lyrics, something that was meaningful to us, and that's what we were tossing in that big hole as we broke ground together. It's now gonna be part of the foundation of our church facility. And so when I heard big rocks, I took that as a literal interpretation. Well, a couple days later, you know, I didn't see anything like popping up online about the groundbreaking service. And I'm thinking, man, we should probably have something covering the basic details. And, and so I just floated that to the staff and was like, hey, you know, should we do some sort of post? We need to get maybe another email or two out there reminding people. And, and Emily's like, well, I thought you didn't want me to do that. And I was like, well, I, I, just, I just didn't want you to do something about like the big stones. We're going to cover that in service. And the, she was like, oh, when I said big rocks, what I meant was details, she was like, I, I wanted to send out more communication about like what to, you know, what time to be there and the, the address to use and what to bring. She was receiving that for me as something totally different. So what was happening is we were using the same word, but both of us had a very different meaning. So just, man, pray for our marriage, our communication. You know, we're trying to, to, to figure all that out. Same word, but very different meaning. And the same thing happens I've seen when it comes to this word church membership. Because so many of us have so many different meanings about what that word actually means. Whenever sometimes we hear it, we quickly get defensive and and we start to give pushback. You know, we uh, try to teach on this subject about once a year as a church family. It's a distinctive of our church, something that we champion and we we uphold as as a body of believers. And what we saw, especially in our first year together as a church, is that there was a lot of pushback to this practice is that every, everything was all well and good as people were attending until we started talking about becoming members of the church. And then suddenly, man, we, we had a couple dozen people who were like, man, I'm out on that and, and not feeling this. And, and so very transparently, like it's a subject, probably more than any other subject through the last five years, we've received a good bit of pushback on. But if I could, I could just kind of nudge gently the other direction, I go back to year one. This is what really broke my heart about a lot of those criticisms, is, is that almost none of them were in any way, shape, or form rooted in Scripture. It was rooted in preference. It was rooted in opinion. It was a lot of subjective language of, I just think, and it just seems, and I just feel like, like this isn't really something that we should be doing. And, and unfortunately, for the church has given people a lot of good reason to, to push away from church membership because they, they uh, have a negative experience, something bad that's happened in the past. And so we start to hear this language, and we really quickly can start to check out the moment that we hear that word. But the vast majority of the time, the pushback comes from having a faulty definition. Jonathan Lehman has a really helpful short book on church membership. He says this. He says, when people ask, where is church membership in the Bible, the problem is they're looking for something like a club to join because the word membership is a club word. This means the Bible doesn't talk about church membership quite as you might want it to. It talks instead about how God's people gather together under his supreme rule. It's interested in in citizens of a kingdom, not club members. If you're following in your worship guide this morning, taking notes, I man, I would just encourage you, underline that last sentence, circle it, star next to it. I mean, something to, to make that stand out because that is in so many ways going to serve as the foundation of what we see in 1 Corinthians 12 together today. So again, the mantra we've restated time and time again the last two months is that words have meaning. And this word membership, like every other word that we've looked at the last several weeks, has a meaning and we have not been given to the freedom To edit that meaning. So, from 1 Corinthians 12, what we're going to see today is that the church is one body made up of many members. Now, everybody say one body, everybody say many members. The church is one body made up of many members, all of whom belong to Jesus. And the way we demonstrate our unity to his global body, that's all Christians everywhere, is through membership in a single local church, in a local congregation. That's what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 12. Let's read together again verses 12 through 13. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church, writing to the congregation in Corinth. He says, for just as the body is one, everybody say one, and has many members, everybody say many members, And all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So, what is church membership? We see first from this passage this morning that church membership is a commitment to unity. Church membership is a commitment to unity. The body of Christ is one body with many members. But the very first thing we need to do is qualify what the apostle Paul means by this word member. Because Paul doesn't use the word member the way most of us use the word member. Paul gives the the picture here of a physical body. So right away what we see is that when the Bible uses this word member, when Paul uses it, we are not members of the church in the way a golfer is a member of a club. We are members of the church in the way that my arm is a member of my body. So so two very, very different uses here. The term that Paul uses for member, it could also mean limb. And so that's much of our problem in communication is uh, we say member and many hear club. But when Paul says member, what he means is limb. So again, when someone says, I don't see church membership in the Bible, it's usually because we're looking for something that's not actually there. When we say member, we think hierarchical institution. We think exclusivity. We think elevated social status and insider-outsider mentality. And if that's what you're looking for, friend, then you're absolutely right. That's not in Scripture at all. But if what we're talking about is an interdependent gathering of redeemed sinners, all of whom play an indispensable function in displaying the glory of Christ in their unity in a local congregation, then it's all over the New Testament and we can't ignore it. So, we have to make sure we understand what we mean by membership because secular membership and church membership are two completely different universes. Secular membership says you can belong if you pay your dues, church membership says you can belong because it has been paid by Jesus. Secular membership is an exclusive club for a select group of people, church membership is men, women, and children from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Secular membership is about entitlements, it's about rights, it's about privileges, it's about my personal preferences being met and all my personal desires being catered to. But church membership is about service and humility and selflessness and laying down my personal preferences for the sake of others. There's a common criticism that church membership causes division. But church membership, as we see in 1 Corinthians 12, it's not about creating division. Church membership is about breaking down all of the division that's been set up by sin. This is what we're going to see in the next several verses. It does not matter your age, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status. If you have professed faith in Jesus Christ and publicly identified with him in baptism, regardless of where you're coming from, you can get in on this. And that's what we see in 1 Corinthians 12. Church membership is a commitment to unity. We see from verse 12 that it's a commitment to relational unity with one another. Again, look at the foundation that Paul lays He says, the body is one, and the body has many members, or limbs, plural, and all the members of the body, though many, are one. So the body is one, and the body is many, and the many are one. So yes, Paul says we are one body in terms of all Christians in all places globally. So it's true, yes, we are globally a part of the big C church, you might say. But it's also true that Paul is writing this letter to a single local congregation. He's writing this to the church in Corinth. That's, that's probably our clearest evidence for church membership in the New Testament is that Paul is writing letters to specific local congregations. So when it comes to, are, are we just part of the big C church globally or a, a little C church locally? From the biblical perspective, friends, this is not an either or, it's a both and. We, we demonstrate our unity to the global body of believers through commitments. In a local congregation, and, and where else do we see this type of relationship reflected in Scripture? Paul says that we are one and we are many. Who else models this type of community for us? God does. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What do we call that relationship? Now, is He one God or three gods? Answers: No. Right? This heresy alert this morning. No, he, he is, it's, it's both and. He is one and he is three. God is one and God is three. And that's what's being imaged in our relationship with one another. We are one body and yet we are many members. You and I, we've been created in the image of God. And that's what has been given to us. It is to steward that image and to, to share forth that image to the ends of the earth. And so if the church is going to accurately reflect the tri-unity of God, then we have to be in unity and relationship with one another. You remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, Dave Eatman from our elder team was uh, preaching from Acts chapter 4. And Dave, I love this, he spent a few minutes in a sermon. He read, all of the one another statements from the New Testament. You guys remember that a couple of weeks ago? He took a few minutes just, just reading all of the one another commands. I mean, it took a few minutes to, to get through all of them. And, and, and what that shows us by having all these commands is that, man, we have to be with each other. We've gotta be in relationship. You can't one another, you can't do all the one another's if it's just one and no one other, right? Like we need each other in order just to be obedient to what God has given us in his word, We're one body with many members. I don't think it can be overstated enough in our very me-centric culture that we're living in. The church is not an I. The church is an us. Church is never just me and Jesus. Church is always we and Jesus. It's us together as one body. We read this earlier from Psalm 133. It's so important for us to see. The Lord commands his blessing where there is unity. Where there is a united body of believers, the Lord commands his blessing. And that's a promise that we can rest in today. We also see from this passage that, we, uh, that, that uh, the church is a commitment to doctrinal unity within our beliefs. Now, this is not the deep dive into this subject this morning, but just very quickly in light of what we read in verse 13. There are some who teach that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a separate experience apart from conversion that primarily, primarily leads to the, the speaking in tongues. But Paul makes it clear here that all who believe in Jesus are metaphorically baptized into the body at the moment of conversion— so even in the New Testament, when we see people later uh, experience what, what often is referred to as a baptism, a separate baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's because they had not yet heard of the Holy Spirit. That, that's not the case for us today. We baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We preach in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And while there might be uh, multiple instances of experiencing a filling of the Spirit, the moment we come to faith in Jesus, we are baptized into his body, and we publicly profess that faith through baptism. And that's what publicly identifies us as followers of Christ. So we who have called on the name of the Lord for salvation, we've been filled with the power of his Spirit, publicly professed our allegiance to him in baptism, and it's that common faith that unites us as the body of Christ. We also see that church membership is a commitment to spiritual unity with Christ. So verse 13, Paul says that we are all made to drink of his Spirit. What Paul's saying here is pointing us to the reality that Christ himself is living water. We go to John chapter 7. This is Jesus as he's preaching to a, a large crowd gathered here. It says, second half of verse 37, that he stands up to the crowd and he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is the grand invitation of Jesus. Verse 38, he says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, about those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. That's what Paul says when we are made to drink. So we're united relationally with one another, doctrinally in our beliefs, spiritually in Christ. And friends, I just want you to catch a picture of this, what it means to be united to Christ. At the moment of conversion, At the moment of conversion, the Holy Spirit cleansed you of your sin, filled you with the resurrection power of Jesus, and united you together to the body of Christ. The day you put your faith in Jesus was a very busy day in your soul. God was doing all of this work. You were, in that moment, baptized into the Spirit, into his body, and he permanently indwells you as a fountain of living water that never runs dry. This is what we have in Jesus Paul goes on, verses 13 to 20, to say this, "'For in one spirit we were all baptized in one body. "'Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, "'and all were made to drink of one spirit. "'For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. "'If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, "'I don't belong to the body, "'that would not make it any less a part of the body. "'And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, "'I do not belong to the body, "'that would not make it any less a part of the body. "'If the whole body were an eye, "'where would be the sense of hearing?' If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, watch this, God arranged. Everybody say, God arranged. It's God who did this. It's God who put the parts of the body together. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member in the body, or if all were a single member, where would the body be? And as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So church membership is a commitment to unity. And second, we see that church membership is a commitment to diversity. And there, in this passage, there are at least three forms of diversity that mark the body of Christ. These are the things that will naturally occur as the message of the gospel is preached among God's people. We see that church membership is a commitment to ethnic diversity. In verse 13, Paul says, In Christ, there is no longer Jew nor Greek. That these identities have now collapsed at the foot of the cross. The local church is the earthly outpost of a heavenly kingdom. That's our calling here. So under the old covenant, Israel was God's chosen nation, but they were specifically chosen not just to be on their own God's people, but to be a light to the nations. From the beginning of Scripture to the very end, it has always been God's intention and desire that his image be multiplied to the ends of the earth among all peoples. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, the cultural mandate given to Adam and Eve. It's to be fruitful and what? And multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Then we see God's call of Abraham. He says, I will make you a great nation, and you will be a blessing to other nations. Then through the prophet Isaiah, he says that Israel will be a light to those nations. Then the great commission given by Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, it's go and preach disciples of where, church? Of all nations. This is the language that Jesus uses there. panta ta ethne, all ethnicities. So that's not just all geographical territories, that's all peoples and people groups and dialects and languages. All of church history is sprinting towards an eternity where there's a multitude no one can number from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is what happens when the gospel is preached. I just asked us this question this morning, who among us would not want to worship in a church that is going to reflect the heaven where we'll spend eternity? Again, there's so much division that continues to happen around this subject of of ethnic dividing lines and what's the role of the church. And we go back to even where we were last week. Church, our role is to preach the gospel. This is what the gospel tells us. The gospel tells us not only is reconciliation possible, the gospel tells us reconciliation has already happened through the blood of Jesus. means, man, regardless of your age, your ethnicity, your gender, your background, if you believe in Jesus Christ, we have already been united together. The question is only, will we walk faithfully in the works that God has already prepared for us? Will we pursue this together as one body? This is what the gospel does. We preach the gospel because it breaks down every barrier set up by sin. So church membership is a commitment to ethnic diversity. It's also a commitment to socioeconomic diversity. Paul says not only is there no longer Jew nor Gentile, he says there is no longer slave nor free. This is the beauty of the gospel. It means whether you are the wealthiest of the wealthy or the poorest of the poor, whether you are in the top 1% or the bottom 10%, every wall class that has been set up by sin was obliterated by the wrecking ball of the cross of Christ. It doesn't matter your age, your ethnicity. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter your background. You belong to Christ, which means you belong to his body. And your history, your portfolio, it doesn't make you more or less valuable than anyone else. So we see, again, church membership is not about setting up a wall of division. It's about breaking down the walls of division that have been set up by sin. Man, and I just, I just praise God as I was prepared for this a couple of weeks ago, even just looking at the makeup of our own congregation and what we've seen here in this room even just over the last month. Over the last month alone, we have had in our worship gatherings, we've had wealthy business owners, and we've had people who were temporarily homeless, worshiping together the same Jesus. We've had people who have never had a drop of alcohol a day in their life, and we've had people who were literally that week on their way to rehab. We've had salaried one-percenters and hourly part-timers. And guess what? This is the beautiful thing when it comes to Jesus. There's no distinction in his eyes. It doesn't matter how much you have. It doesn't matter how much you don't have. Every barrier that has been set up by sin of ethnicity, of socioeconomic class, all of it has been broken down by the work of the gospel. But there's not just ethnic diversity and socioeconomic diversity. We see within the body there is also spiritual diversity. And what we mean by that is diversity in our giftedness. God has gifted all of us in very unique and diverse ways within the body. It's God himself, we saw, who has arranged the parts of the body. It's God who chose us to be here for a specific time and place and purpose. If you read the full context of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you'll see that the full context of this chapter is the spiritual gifts. And what was happening in Corinth is there were some, particularly those who had the gift of tongues, who were boasting about their gifts and making others feel inferior about their gifts. So Paul just draws a, a really logical argument here and paints a really simple picture. He says, you know, it'd be really silly for the foot to think that it's not part of the body just because it's not a hand. It'd be silly for the ear to feel inferior just because it's not an eye. What God has done is he's organized this in such a way that each part of the body is interdependent on the other parts of the body to fulfill its function. That's why Paul goes on in verses 21 to 25 to say, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So church membership is a commitment to unity and diversity, to diversity. Third, we see that church membership is also a commitment to humility. This is what Paul is getting at here in, in these few verses. Just Here's how it works. At a uh, functions at a practical level on the local church ground. So, those who may have more of a public gift, like preaching or teaching, what Paul's saying is, is that those who have the gift of preaching, they have no right to look down or think less of those whose gifting might be in administration. Have you ever been a part of a church with good preaching but bad administration? It's a mess, right? Like, we need each other. So those who uh, saw someone healed after they prayed for them, they have no right to look down on the person whose gifting might be more in in acts of service or even generosity behind the scenes in such a way that's not going to be seen by others. Each part of the body plays an indispensable role. Now, I'll I'll pick on myself here for just a second this morning and on preachers in general. I want you to think about just how lame the church would be if everybody's gift was preaching. You know, I have any idea how bad our community groups would be if they were all led by preachers. They'd be terrible, right? Like nobody else would get a word in edgewise. Like all of us who have the gift of preaching and teaching, like we're internally just the Holy Spirit is like, shut up, shut up. You know, just quiet, like let other people talk. Like that's, that's got to happen. Now, you need a diversity of gifts to see things like this function. Just think about this. Like what is preaching? What is the mouth without service? Hands to serve the needs of the body. What is preaching without evangelism? Feet who will run to the lost with good news. What is preaching without discernment? Ears that will be able to distinguish between truth and error. What is preaching without mercy? Eyes to see and identify the lost and the broken and the hurting. What is preaching without faith? Knees to hit the ground in prayer. What is preaching without generosity? The heart that desires to generously give. As believers, we can sin in one of two ways when it comes to the spiritual gifts. We can either be puffed up with pride because we think in our gifting that we're better than everybody else, or we view our gifts with disdain and we're envious of the gifts of everyone else. I love this short prayer from Brennan Manning in his work, Souvenirs of Solitude. It speaks to the significance of all of us serving in the body. He said, Lord, when I feel what I'm doing is insignificant and unimportant, Help me to remember that everything I do is significant and important in your eyes. Why? Because you love me and you put me here. And no one else can do what I am doing in exactly the way I do it. Whatever your gifting is, whatever your calling is, that has been given to you by God. He has given that to you irrevocably as a gift for the express purpose of the building up of his body. We'll look at this more in just a few weeks And then in verses 21 to 25, Paul paints this really powerful picture for us. And again, as we get into this section, I just want to preface this. Like, I'm not trying to be silly. I'm not trying to be rude. That This is what Paul says. Like, this is what he's getting across. He says, the parts of our body that seem the weakest or the the parts of the body that we are least likely to show to others, these are actually the parts of the body, he says, that are most valuable. Our unpresentable parts are the parts of the body that we treat with greater honor and modesty. And by unpresentable parts, he means exactly what you think he means. He says, we treat these parts of our bodies with greater modesty. You know, there's a sense in which the body parts we are least inclined to show to others are the parts that we treat with most uh, care and, and, and most delicately. Because what we know this, that to show the most intimate parts of our bodies, like, this is an extraordinary act of trust and vulnerability. Because what's going through our minds in that moment is, man, what will they think when they see all of me? And so this is the picture that Paul is painting for us within the church. This is what he's getting at here. What Paul is saying is that within the church, there are those who think to themselves and they think of their gifting. I'm a giant embarrassment to God. I contribute nothing significant to the kingdom and it's best that I stay hidden. There's some of us who convince ourselves of this and yet what does Paul say? No, 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 no. He said, God has designed these, these more unpresentable parts, that the parts that we are least inclined to show to those, these are the ones that are treated with the greatest honor. Someone in this room is convinced that they're a worse sinner than everybody else. Someone in this room is convinced that, that it's better to stay hidden because to truly show yourself would be a giant embarrassment to the body in the name of Jesus Christ. But the parts of the body that we are least likely to reveal to others are the parts of the body that are most indispensable. Friend, whatever your story and your background, somebody needs that. And God has placed you here for the express purpose or or in the local church that you're part of for the express purpose of using your story, using that gifting, using that calling for the building up of the body. And this is what that means for you and I. No matter how how, how unpresentable we think we are, every single one of us plays an essential function in the body of Christ. So Paul goes on to say, verses 26 and 27, so if one member suffers, all suffer together. There's none more insignificant than anyone else, so if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. It reminds us in verse 27, "Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it." So church membership is a commitment to unity. Church membership is a commitment to diversity and to humility. We see forth that church membership is a commitment to solidarity. Where one, one member suffers, all suffer together. This is what Paul is expressing in Galatians chapter six verse two, where, where he, he, he exhorts us in the church in Galatia, "Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is what we have been called to do, together as a body. Nobody should be carrying pain and baggage on their own. We're called to carry these things together. If we are truly one body, then it means the condition of one member has a cumulative impact on the other members. If you don't believe me, go stub your toes sometime today. You'll, you'll walk around for the next two weeks like, like, like your hips are just imploding, right? Like it, it impacts the whole body. It's not just that one part of the body. It impacts your whole body. Go get food poisoning and see if it impacts more than your stomach, Right? Like we know that when one member of our body suffers, it can have an impact on the whole body. Anybody ever have a back injury before? Does that impact just your spine? No. That's impacting your legs. It can impact your knees. It can impact your neck. It can impact whether or not you're you're having headaches. When one member suffers, we all suffer together. So I want to go back to just where we were last Sunday. This is why we took a break in this series just to really reflect globally on what's unfolding uh, with our brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine right now. Because again, there's just pre- this prevailing mentality uh, where many Western believers, we are viewing events like these, not through a biblical lens, but through a political lens. And, and just stressed on this last week, I want to reemphasize this again today. There's this prevailing mentality, even among Christians, of, well, if it doesn't impact America, then why should we care? Friends, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering. And if one member suffers, we all suffer. You must categorically reject any thinking that gives you permission to not care about the suffering of brothers and sisters in Jesus, or about human suffering for that matter. We are made in the image of God, and we are called to be one body, to reflect the triunity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which we do at a local level and we do at a global level. So when one member suffers, we all suffer. So, so yes, when our brothers and sisters in Christ, Afghanistan, like we did last summer, to, to pray and to fast and to plead for them because they're suffering, we suffer. When we have brothers and sisters in Christ reflected on the testimony of a brother pastor in Ukraine, he was walking to the building last Sunday just to see if it was still there. And if it was, they planned together to gather, gather together as God's people. When one member suffers, we all suffer Church membership is about entering into the ebb and flow of sorrow and rejoicing. And I know from my seat, guys, you know, most weeks and most days for that matter, I get to see both. It was a few weeks ago. Many of you will remember uh, Wally and Marilyn Wallace. They were um, just a sweet couple that uh, joined in with our church family in our first year. They were with us for about two, three years, and then they moved uh, to a different community and were just so influential in our church family early on. And uh, many of you are aware Wally passed away about a month ago after a battle with cancer. And so, you know, as we get the news about Wally, like, what are we doing as a church body, those of us who knew him? We're, we're hurting. We're hurting for him. We're hurting for Marilyn. You know, when they come here locally and uh, he was buried at National Cemetery, I did his graveside service there, you know, and so, man, we, we enter into that with people. We enter into their suffering. We enter into their mourning. We enter into their pain. And, man, in the same week, just a couple of days later, we had a couple babies being born in our church family, which is pretty much a daily occurrence, I think, in our church family. We, we got that fruitful and multiply thing. We got that down, right? That's like the one command we're acing as a, as a church family right now. And so, so yeah, on, on one hand, it's sorrow, and then it's rejoicing. And that's what church membership is. We enter into the ebb and flow together of that sorrow and rejoicing. And a lot of times that's happening on the same day. But the bottom line is that we stand in solidarity with each other. When people are hurting, we hurt with them. When people deserve honor, we honor them, and we rejoice with them and for them. So this is what church membership is. It it is a commitment around, uh, around unity and diversity and humility and solidarity where we have locked together arms as the people of God to say, we are in this together come what may. We're in this together. So very quickly, before we transition into a couple of applications of these truths, maybe you're still sitting there and you're like, okay, I'm still not quite seeing, you know, uh, local church membership at a New Testament level beyond 1 Corinthians 12. I just, I want to read through these. These are bullet notes. If you come through our Crosspoint class, we teach through these. If you are a member of our church, these are in your Crosspoint guide. But, but here are evidences we see beyond just being a part of the global body of believers, what it means to be a member of a local church scattered through the New Testament. So we know all through the New Testament, every Christian was a part of a local congregation and were commanded in Hebrews chapter 10 to gather together with the assembly. Hebrews 13 calls leaders, uh, pastors and elders to care for specific bodies of people And all Christians are commanded to submit to specific leaders in their lives. We know from Acts 2 that numerical records were kept. We know from Acts 16, Philippians 4, that individuals who were serving or in need of correction were addressed by name, particularly in the letters of the Apostle Paul. Acts 6, 1 Timothy 5, 1 Peter 5, this details structures, policies, and procedures even for congregational care. Acts chapter 2, there was a clear awareness of who belonged to the fellowship and who did not, and we'll see this together in two weeks. Jesus himself in Matthew 18, he lays out the process for church discipline and accountability, which is quite literally a process of defining who is in the body and who is not. And again, maybe your hangup is just with the word membership. Maybe you just struggle with that word because of its cultural baggage. Well, well, listen, I hope you'll just take some permission this morning. It, it really doesn't matter if you call it membership, partnership, you know, cruise ship or battleship. The, the point, it's not so much the word as much as the concept we see very clearly implied. Another word we never find in in Scripture at all is the word Trinity. And yet the doctrine of the Trinity, that's a word that we use to describe a very clear, implicit reality in Scripture. It's one God who eternally exists as three persons. Same thing with these words church membership. You're not going to explicitly find that statement, but you're going to find a concept that's very clearly implied. So again, you ask the question, where is membership in the New Testament? Friends, it's pretty simple. It's everywhere if you're looking for the right thing. If you're not looking for the right thing, if you start with the wrong definition, if, if you're hearing one thing, we're saying something different, then if, if, if you're looking at, at secular club type of language, you won't find that every single time. But if you're looking for an interdependent body of believers, each of whom plays an indispensable function of building up the body of Christ, it's all over our New Testament, and we can't ignore it. So, so what do we do with all this this morning? Here, I want to give us two questions just for reflection and application as we start to close our time together today. First question for re- reflection for, for all of us is, is what commitment do you need to make? And hear my heart on this. We share this with the first group as well, and this is part of our membership process uh, as a church family. Our membership process does not always look like connecting people here. Man, we we joyfully we we, we saw this reflected at our groundbreaking ceremony last week. We had several local pastors who joined in with that. We we want families to be served where they're best going to be served and where they can best serve for the building up of the body of Christ. We will at times joyfully recommend other churches, faithful gospel preaching churches that we're confident people will be served at. So the bottom line is whether it's here or somewhere else, man, you you need to be committed to a local congregation. You need to be committed to a local congregation. In the New Testament, there was none of this language of, hey, I'm just kind of part of the big C church, not really part of a little C church. I'm going to come back to this in a second, but in the New Testament, this was not an either or, it was a both and. Everybody who was part of the global body of Christ expressed that commitment through commitment in a local church. And, and in my experience, and just really, I think, as you study church history, there tend to be four barriers to church membership. Those tend to be hurt, confusion, trust, and commitment. So again, for some today, that that commitment is difficult for you because of hurt. There has been legitimate uh, harm. There has been legitimate abuse that has happened to you at the hands of the church or at the hands of a spiritual leader. And please hear my heart this morning when I tell you, it's going to take time to heal from that, and you need to take that time. And I don't think you need to feel rushed to to immediately jump into some commitment that you're not ready for. And we would invite you even to ask questions that you might have about governance and leadership and how decisions are made and and to to, to work with someone to help you process some of these things. And what I hope you'll find in our congregation is a safe place to be able to do that, where you can be encouraged and edified by the fellowship of brothers and sisters, even if you're not formally a member of the congregation. We want you to feel this welcome. But for some men, again, the reason is just hurt. And we get that, and we see that, and we want to enter into that pain with you. For others, it's just confusion. You know, we, we conflate church membership with secular membership. We, again, we, we say membership, but because of our experience, we hear something completely different. There's, you know, a really common mantra that I think has generated a lot of confusion uh, in, in the Western church in particular, and it's this mentality of, well, I'm just kind of part of the big C church. I don't really feel the need to be a part of a single local congregation because I'm just, I'm just part of the global body of Christ and I kind of belong to all churches. And I've given this example before, but I want to give this again because I feel like it really it accentuates what, uh, just, just where some of the holes are at in that type of thinking. So uh, Emily and I, we will celebrate by God's grace 12 years of marriage um, later this August. Love marriage, big fan of marriage, highly recommend marriage uh, for, for sure. Love my wife, she's God's grace and kindness to me. Um, but I don't express my commitment to my wife by being committed to lots of other wives, right? Like, like th- think about this. If you were to hear me say, you know, like, I, I love marriage, a big fan of marriage, but I just kind of see myself as being committed to the big M marriage. Like, I don't really see a need to commit to one marriage. Like, I just, I just kind of consider myself a part of all marriages. That would be frowned upon, right? Probably would cost me my life. We don't, we don't. We know this thinking doesn't really work. No, if we're truly committed to the big C, global church, we express that commitment through commitment to a single lo- little C, co- local congregation. That's the New Testament pattern. It's not people who were either or, it was both and. Everyone who is a part of the global body of Christ expressed that commitment through membership in a local church. For some, the issue is trust. The issue is trust. What are these people going to do when they find out who I really am and what I've really done? What is going to happen when I open up my heart and I'm a little bit more exposed? What's the result of this going to be? And friends, I hope you'll just hear this from me this morning because I certainly hope this is true of this church family. The church of Jesus Christ should be the safest place, the safest place on the planet to sit down with others and say, this is who I am and this is where I've been. And those of us who are members of this church family, when it happens, our response needs to be a firm embrace and a warm voice That when someone dumps out the duffel bag of their life's work on our living room floor, that we can embrace them and say, we love you and there's a place for you here. And why do we do this? Because that's the same welcome that Jesus has given to us. Because he saw us at our worst. He saw us in our sin. He saw us in our wickedness. He saw us in our hypocrisy, in our rebellion, in our hatred of him. And he still pursued us and said, you're mine. He welcomed us to himself in spite of ourselves, and this is the same welcome that we should extend to others. But the last challenge just tends to be in general commitments. You know, we, we tend to be, I think most of us, we are more shaped by the values of consumer culture than most of us are probably willing to admit. We have, many of us, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called a wish dream of a church. If you don't know Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he died as a martyr at the hands of the Nazi regime in World War II as a pastor. And so we have this wish dream of a church that meets every single one of our expectations and our demands and caters to all our preferences. So we're committed to a point. And I think this is a really sad narrative of our culture today, is that here in the West in particular, you do not ever find this in persecuted context, which they should really be our example. But but this tends to be the mentality in the West today is, man, a church can be faithful in preaching the gospel, it can be faithful in teaching the Bible, can be sound in doctrine, committed to doing justly, loving mercy, walking humbly with God, uh, advancing the Great Commission to the ends of the earth, but we've got one foot out the door because we don't quite like the music. Like, have, have we thought about how unbiblical that line of thinking is? And so I want to encourage you just to think in, in this framework this morning, because every single one of us, I would bet, like even of this church, our church family notwithstanding, there's, there's maybe just 1% that we're struggling to get on board with. Maybe it's time for us to consider in our consumer-driven culture that that 1% or 0.01% that we're struggling that doesn't meet our preferences, maybe that is God's gift to us to remind us that we're not here to worship ourselves. And I feel this sometimes too. I don't, I don't quite love that song. It's good to have the reminder we weren't singing to you. We were singing to Jesus. We're going to give him the glory that's due his, his name. So let's not be people who commit just because of the 1%, refuse to commit because of the 1%. And the second question is for all of us is, again, just what commitment do you need to renew? Those of us who are members of this congregation, we came together at our last family meeting, and this is exactly what we did. We renewed our membership covenant together. Whether someone was here for five weeks or had been here for five years, we came back and we, we uh, renewed those New Testament commitments that are listed out in our membership covenants to say we're going to do these things together as one body. So what commitment do you need to renew? Where do you need to seek unity? Where do you need to celebrate diversity even within the body? How maybe do you need to walk in humility or stand in solidarity with other brothers and sisters in Christ? How might you need to renew your commitment to the gathering, to growing together in community with other believers, to giving of your time, treasure, talent for the building up of the body, to going and, and preaching the gospel and making disciples in Beaufort and beyond? So what commitment do you need to make? What commitment do you need to renew? And I want to close with these words from uh, Charles Spurgeon for us together this morning. I read these back in the fall, but this was just resonating with me again this week because I think it speaks so clearly to where we are today. Spurgeon said this a couple centuries ago. He said, give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should, as speedily as possible, also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it is right for everyone, and then the testimony for God would be lost to the world. As I have already said, the church is faulty, but that is no excuse for you not joining it, if you are the Lord's nor need your own faults keep you back. Listen, pay attention here. For the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace. Who though they are saved are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. So, Father, that's our prayer this morning. That's our desire, is that we would be a congregation like this. Father, that we would not be just a museum for the saints, that we would be a hospital for sinners. Lord, that we would welcome others with the same grace that you have welcomed us through your son, Jesus. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that unites us together as brothers and sisters in Christ, as one body where the gospel is preached and every barrier that's set up by sin is being broken down. Help us to be this church. Help us to be your people as you've shown us in your word. And if you'll just keep your heads bowed with me, we're going to enter into our time of communion here in just a moment. And communion really is the most unifying activity that we can do together as believers. That's why our church does this every single week. It's to remind us that the foot, the ground at the foot of the cross is level doesn't matter your background. doesn't matter your history. It doesn't matter your story. doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter your gifting. doesn't matter your sin. We all come to the table as the same people who are sinners in need of a Savior. And that's what we're gonna do here in just a moment. So to take just a moment in confession and repentance. Let's just lay before the Lord any, any sins unconfessed in our lives, even asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts to see sins that we can't see. What words, what actions, what thoughts, what motives, what desires, what behaviors, what habits, what strongholds, what patterns, what is in your life that is not of Christ? Let's confess that now and lay it at his feet. 1 John 1.9 promises us that if we confess our sins, the Lord is faithful and he's just. He will forgive us of all sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So as we confess, let's ask the Lord to give us a heart of genuine repentance. That we would not just be sorry for the sins we've committed, but that we would be zealous to turn from those sins, to walk away from these things in the perfect righteousness that's been given to us through Jesus Christ. Fathers, we confess, as we repent, as we sing, we thank you so much For what you have given to us the gift of your son Jesus a gift that none of us deserved and as we come to this table Lord help us to once again remember what it cost you to save us let us never take that lightly let us leave rejoicing in the victory that you have given to us through faith in his name so father as we confess as we repent as we pray as we sing and as we respond We pray that it would all be a sweet fragrance and aroma to you in this place, that you would be glorified in the hearing of the praises of your people. We ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everyone said, amen, amen.